southwestern France on a family holiday. Yeah, we, we got here on Friday. Oh, I'm jealous. So hi, I'm McCray Jamfee, founder of the British Blacklist. And I'm here with a young lady who I will let introduce herself. So tell us who you are and what you do. Ah, yes. My name is Nana Mensa. I am an actor, writer, and director. I acted in, wrote, and directed the film Queen of Glory, which is coming out in UK cinemas on the 26th of August. Oh, you did that perfectly. I don't even have to ask you any more questions, because that's all you need. <laughs> that's done. We're when good. is it coming yeah. out? What do you do? What you? Um, first of all, I don't understand why... People keep saying you're British, but you're American. What's happening here? What's what? I live. I live in London. Uh But I was born and raised in the States and then uh, I'm Ghanaian American. So, yeah, 100 percent Ghanaian American. I just live in I live in England. Why did you do that? Why would you come here? Have you seen the news? (laughs) (laughs) America. (laughs) That old thing, that old chestnut. Um, When did you you come to London? Uh, 2020, September 2020. Pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Like in the middle of the pandemic. And what was the motivation? You was like, this country is shit. Let me move to another less shit country. Basically. I mean, it's not Wakanda, you know, but I've said before that, like, I think there's some things in the UK that are not up for debate the way that they are in the United States. Things like healthcare and abortion and guns. And I think I've noticed that being in the UK helps my blood pressure. And then also like the way the city of, of London is constructed or like greater London, it's like, you know, with your transport links, with your this and that, you don't feel like you're at the end of the earth when you live outside. Like nobody lives in the city of London, really, aside from like, you know, a few bankers and, and, and um, you know, a few sheiks. But, but everyone else lives out, you know, whereas the only place in America that I would live is New York. But New York has a way of cannibalizing its young, you know, in term, financially and just okay. and, and whatnot. So I think it was just, OK, doing a, a benefit analysis. And it's like I can live in London and work. You know, I've been cast for stuff in the U.S. out of London. I've been cast for stuff in London in London. And so I feel good about the move for me energetically and then also professionally. I can understand. I think we have the romantic view definitely from the UK because I love New York. In my mind, I could live in New York, but it's like a bigger, bolder, brashier version of London City, I guess. And I love it when I'm there, but I'm also at the back of my mind, like, okay, what would it like to really live here? I had a friend who's actually no longer with us, but her move to America was very inspiring, but her journey was so difficult. And I don't know if that even contributed to anything else, but it was so difficult yeah. how trying to survive in that moment. So that was a reality check for the fantasy of being there. 100%. Obviously, I'm very grateful to America for what it gave me, what it gave my family, but I don't find it coincidental that none of us live there anymore. (laughs) Like, we all were like, cool, cool, cool. Thanks for the good times. We're out, you know? But for the land of opportunity, what was it like being a Ghanaian American? Because I'm over here in the UK. I've always had, you know, my uncle in America. I've always had the cousins in America and things like that. But I had no perspective what the experience was like. Over here in the UK, we had, we of course had first-hand racism from white to black. Then we had inter-community, intercultural tribalism between the Caribbeans and Africans. Then you break it down to Nigerians and, and Ghanaians. And sometimes then like West Africans versus East Africans. So all of that. But there was still like I could touch, feel and smell being Ghanaian in the UK. And I didn't really think about what it's like in America for... Ghanaians. I would say it's less that. There exists that tribalism that you, I think that you so kind of eloquently broke down that exists. But at the same time, like I think because America is so attuned, to, like obviously it's history with 
enslavement and, and right. how the country was built and who built the country, I think only recently have I come to realize there's a splintering. Before it was just like, you are black, you are not black. I think in Ghanaian households and West African households, there was a little bit of a like, look, we are this. And, and that this is like, we know our ancestry. We were not brought here as enslaved people to build this country for free. And that's a privilege. You know, I think that that was how I experienced that. Like, yes, we are all black. We all share skin color, but there are subtle differences. We came yeah. here on an airplane by choice, you know, and that's something that needs to be demarcated. And so when I realized, and, and not to say that there's a value judgment on us is better than them, but I think what was really interesting was that I think a few years ago, Harvard came out and said, oh, we have had our most ethnically diverse year ever. Like if you look at our admissions, but somebody went through and scratched a little deeper and a lot of their black students were first generation African, you know? And so like, and so in that way, it's like, yes, you can pat yourself on the back, but how are you really going out there and uplifting the American descendants of enslaved people? How are you going to uplift them? But, you know, so I'm aware of my privilege, in other words, like being Ghanaian American allowed me to be aware of my privilege of that. Yes, I am black and I am going to experience that very banal racism that most black people do. Um, but at the same time, I can get on a plane. I have citizenship elsewhere, right? Like I am not tied to this country in the same way that somebody who's like great, 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 great grandfather was brought here on a ship forced to work the land for no money and much heartbreak. And, and like, I think that um, that is worth remembering, you know, I think so. So I don't know if I have as much of a crystal, you, you had, you cut it so clearly. And I don't, I think it's a lot murkier, but I think it's also because Americans relationship to race is it's a more violent culture. And I know that we inherited that culture from the Brits, but like it just went on a whole different trajectory. I mean, it's so interesting hearing you say this because I guess black people over here don't, I don't know that where we sit in privilege. And I think definitely, I think Caribbeans possibly share a similar feeling to black Americans in the cultural yeah. wars between Africans and Caribbeans in the UK. So the privilege thing, as you're saying, as being African or being Ghanaian American, me being Ghanaian British, is it hierarchy? Is it privilege? you know, the representation of Blacks in school and education, Africans tend to be a little bit more advanced. And I don't know what that is. And so that causes an issue. And because I, I'm, I'm saying all of that to say, from the perspective of being a creative and exploring that space, has your heritage, is it a privilege? Or has it just been, you've been Black, you've been cast, you've been afforded opportunities because of whatever, not because of whatever. I think my heritage is a privilege. I think, I mean, it's all been a privilege, to be honest. One day I'll like write the story or something, but like through a series of extremely fortunate events, my dad went from a really great private school in Ghana to Yale University, right? And then from Yale, was able to kind of move from strength to strength. And I was raised in an extremely healthily middle-class upbringing. And so... My parents, it started off incredibly challengingly, but then they were able to go from that to being like, okay, how do we maximize everything that has happened to us and move confidently in the direction of our children's destiny and making sure that they are not going to have to do the things that we did. And they were incredibly well thought out. And so as it relates to me, 
I have an enormous amount of privilege and I'm extremely, I'm, I'm very aware of it, of just the ways in which I was allowed to make art. And mind you, my parents were not thrilled, obviously. It's so stereotypical at this point, but I would go be an engineer, doctor, lawyer, whatever. The fact that I got a great education and then my parents were like, well, okay, we've done our bit. We're now setting you free. If you want to go and work for no money at a restaurant while you're going on auditions, go with God. We did our part, you know? And so, so again, so not to say they didn't, not to say they didn't struggle, not to say I didn't struggle, but like, I am aware of, of my immense privilege. And, and I do try to pay it forward in my art making and the roles that I select and the auditions that I'll turn down because I feel like this isn't in line with like, you know, my parents worked too hard for me to go be crackhead prostitute number four you I'm know in a law and order <laughs> like, yeah. You know? yeah so there's just and, and then also sometimes I think if there are roles that are very much entrenched in the black American experience I do think twice before like kind of raising my hand or doing a tape or whatever because I'm like you know what like I'm cognizant of the fact that yes I have the skin color I can pass I can do the I can do the black American thing but like that isn't my experience. I, I think we're examining a lot of these questions as Black people right yeah. now. You know? And it's like, if the part is great and I feel like it's three-dimensional and it's wonderful, I will probably go for it. But I'm also, there's a voice in the back of my head that's like, is this yours? Is this for you? And so I don't know what to do. I don't know. What do you think? What I'm doing as I'm listening to you is like taking your word for it. Do you get what I mean? So that, and it's what we accuse, not maybe accuse or what white people go through when it's like, well, this black person said this. So that makes everything okay. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I've listened to black people from, who are not black American, African American say, but it's acting. I'm just going to go for the one. I'm going to bring the best. And that's it. And I'm like, okay, well, they said it. It's understandable. I've heard black Americans say, we understand it's acting. So I'm like, okay, they've said it. Now you're saying this. And part of me is empathizing. Like, what the hell? Free yourself of this pressure. Take the role but also commending you for having this extra thought because, I mean, as Africans, we've suffered, and Africans and Caribbeans have suffered through Black Americans doing poor accents and poor representation of who they think we are. And I guess we do the same. I think it's just interesting, and I appreciate the conversation being explored. I think my la-la, we are the world, kumbaya moment is that we don't turn on each other. I just want us as Black people to be able to explore things that are sticky without us turning on each other because we have a bigger threat ahead of us. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's important to ask those questions. Consider it, just consider it. Like, I think that's the step, the first step. Am I doing some sort of disservice by stepping into this role? And I think that's fair. So when doing the back research, I hadn't really thought about where I knew you from. But then I realized that you were in an African city, the web series. And I remember that explosion of web series and popularity back in the early noughties, whatever, I don't know. What, what, like 20, like, it was like 2014. Yeah, 2014. But yeah. so the mid, I don't know what to call the noughties, that part of it. But that time yeah. when everyone had a web series and everything was, yeah. and there was also this exploration of black women, you know, not being ratchet, not being hood, but also being upper class, middle class, successful. And that, you know, that black sex and city search. And I remember watching An African City. I enjoyed it. But there was a there was something that irked me, not necessarily about anyone's performance or anything like that. It was generally this conversation about the black sex in the city and having to have those images to counter sex in the city. And I don't know, it's just who are we talking to, who are we trying to impress here? However, 
an African city I felt was necessary because I also grew up in a household of Nollywood and Gollywood and just like, please, can we have better camera angles? Please, can we have better narratives than the witch doctor is coming and then the cheating, philandering husband? So, an African city, why did you take part in it? <laughs> I took part in it. Um, you know, I was, the Africans, an African city came at a perfect time for me because I was feeling really burnt out, hitting the pavement in New York, not getting roles. And then Nicole Amatifio, the creator of the show, came along and was like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. It's like an African sex in the city because when you go to Ghana, when I go to Ghana, this is what I see. And then you go to the States and you talk about Africa and it's like, wait, like what? You have what? It's what, you know? And so she was just like, so when you say, who are you talking to? I think Nicole actually was pretty clear that she was speaking to the West and it was it was for us, but it was also very much with, with the gaze, the Western gaze upon yeah. it. To just be like, hey, look, when I go home, I'm lamping around in the land, in the land Rover, okay? Like, I'm not like, you know? And I think that that was needed at that time because I yeah. think there was so much, I mean, it was like right around, it was probably before, I'm probably getting my years wrong, but I feel like something as simple as Tom's, right? Like, not to come for anybody, but like those shoes where it's like you buy one and then a pair of shoes will go to a child in Africa I or mean, whatever. You know, like it's, that stuff is so pervasive. It's like Africa does not need your charity. Africa needs your investment. Africa can be the site of your next great business idea. I feel like white people should not even be able to say Africa anymore. They need to start saying countries. I need to I, know you know your geography. I agree. I need you to prove your lack of ignorance. So I think that the narrative is so pervasive and it's so insidious about what Africa is and I think that Nicole was setting out to show what Africa isn't I get it I think the fact that we're in the privilege where I can even contest that because it's exactly that it's pushing against having to explain and show off who we are to the people yeah. we don't give a damn anyway yeah. but at the same time we need to rebrand and I would say we need to rebrand Africa and I think it's happening it's definitely happening but I also was conscious of us emulating being middle class. I'm a middle class black woman, I think, but come from a working class background, it's weird, but I know present middle class. So that experience, I want it to be authentic. So sometimes I feel that when we try, and it's across the board, not just African city, I was saying it, but across the board, when we try and elevate our brand, it then can sometimes ring untrue because like there aren't always perfect successes. It's a weird state to be in. It is a weird state to be in and also always having to be like compare yourself. Oh, it's the, you know, African sex in the city. It is. Exactly. She is, she's the African Shonda Rhyme. She is the African, well, yeah. you know, that's a little different because they're both, but, but like, you know, it's like the ways in which we're always kind of being like, hey, look, 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 you know, a good friend of mine, Jocelyn Bio, who's a Ghanaian American playwright, wrote a play called Schoolgirls because she was so used to having to explain Africanness. She ended up adding a subtitle. It was Schoolgirls or an African Mean Girls play. So that people going in knew, because in her experience, when she writes a play about Africa, comedy about Africa, she notices that white audiences come in and have hesitation and aren't, aren't quite able to laugh. Like they feel nervous about laughing. If they laugh at an African, does that make them racist somehow? Yeah. You know, it's like the liberalism is just like, it's, you know, it's, like, it's, it's eating yeah. itself. It's like, aren't you tired? You know what I mean? Relax. But anyway, so I think that, that there's something to be said for that. And, and also always having to compare ourselves to some something else so that white people understand how to process us or digest us. Yeah. And the positivity of that, though, however, is re-educating and rebranding Africa for Blacks as well who have had a negative and that's not even just 
Caribbeans or Americans, it's also Africans ourselves who have either denied our existence or are hiding our existence because of embarrassment. Embar- embarrassment. Embarrassment. <laughs> I was about to slip into vernacular. You gotta just jump out. It just jumps out. Embarrassment. Because of embarrassment. So it's good to see. Let's get on to Queen of Glory because that is also a story that, being a critic, I'm admitting this. So please tell me off. Being a critic, I was past the film to watch and I was watching it slightly distracted, maybe 60% concentrating on watching Queen of Glory. So when I came away from it, I was going to, because my. We haven't talked about my cousin, Baf Akwatan, who is a producer. And um, I'd like to know how you guys met. But um, I was going to message him and say, bruv, what is this? Like, But then wonderfully and beautifully, one, I didn't message him. Cause I said, I need to watch this again. Because I knew in my head I need to watch this again. Watching it on the big screen the other day at your screening in London, I was like, oh, this is so good. And again, this is, this, is the, this is the problem with critique because it is that a mood, how you watch it, where you watch it, what time you watch it, what you've eaten before you've watched it. All that can sometimes play into your feeling and feedback. But anyway, so I watched it again. I, I mean, it's an amazing film and you captured that um, cultural uh, off-balance being an African and having traditions and culture and then also being Western. Where did the story come from? And is it true to life or is it about other people's stories? I think it's 100% emotionally true, but I would say it is also 100% fiction. However, I think that I'm speaking to like an emotional truth that a lot of West African daughters have experienced. And I think it is gendered. You know, I don't I didn't set out to make a film about toxic African misogyny. However, I did. Accidentally. It just comes out. It just comes out. And so I think that I really loved shaping this tale and and the way that it came about, the story, it's so unsexy. I hate to say this. It came out of necessity. My family owned a Christian bookstore in the Bronx. So I was like, well, I have access to a Christian bookstore in the Bronx. So let me go ahead and like write a script around a Christian bookstore in the Bronx. And I was really heavily influenced by like films like Medicine for Melancholy, Barry Jenkins or um, early Ed Burns, you know, Issa Rae even like uh, Misadventures of Awkward Black Girls, speaking about the web series, Heyday. And and, like Tiny Furniture, Lena Dunham's film, like these films, these first films that are like modestly shot and and shot around things that the the director or the the creator could get for cheap or free. And so um, I got a bit of advice that kind of pushed me in that direction and I was really inspired. And so I, I wrote a film, like a friend of mine, that restaurant scene, a friend of mine owned that restaurant, you know, like I, I really just called in all the favors and made a nuisance of myself with my family and friends in order to kind of like get access to be able to make this stuff, you know. I, I love that you called on favors because when you say that it's got that feel, I can see that there's love. That, that's what it is, the love, because all the scenes are so cute. And just the little moments, going back to the story of being a Ghanaian Brit, being an African and having Africa not sell so well amongst the Blacks. Hearing, every time I hear tree on screen, it warms my heart. But that's something that's it's new, it's new to me. Outside of a Nollywood film, it's new to see it in a contemporary setting. How did you go about authenticating it and, or, or, and making sure that you had those moments and palatable to an audience that are going to be viewing this perspective of culture and tradition revolving around a funeral and death. You know, I'm not setting out to make a Marvel film, right? Like I'm making the film for you and I'm making the film 
for me and I'm making the film maybe for like the the odd film aficionado who like likes to watch indie films you know and, and I don't read reviews but I do know because it's on the poster that somebody said from the Hollywood Reporter they said that this film's a love letter to immigrant daughters in the Bronx that feels very true to me I did write this for my homegirls who are in the exact same situation that I am, straddling two cultures, feeling a little bit lost at sea. And that was who it was for. Now, in terms of authenticity, that was the only thing I had, right? Because I didn't have any money. The only thing I had was authenticity. So I hired, you know, my aunties and my cousins and my uncles, and like, they all showed up for me. They were all in the film. And it was a real snapshot in a moment of time because my family sold the house that we shot in that house has since been sold. The bookstore has been sold. So like really this film oh. now gets to be this like moment in time and like a real, I'm, I'm really excited that my family has that, you know? If I'm not going to have the money, the budget to be able to do pyrotechnics or whatever, have the very expensive camera shot or the zoom, yeah. you know, or the drone and this and that. It's like at the very least, I'm going to keep the story close but I'm going to make it authentic. For example, the family next door, the Russian family, that is actually three generations of the same family. The grandmother, the actor, Anya Migdal, and her daughter. I just hired them. I was like, yes. I knew her mom would be down to be in it because Anya is also a producer on the film. Anya was down to have bring her daughter to work a couple of days. So we were like, let's do this. Let's do this. And so we wrote them into the script. And that was great. Those are some of my favorite scenes, not only because I don't feature so heavily in it. And so it was an opportunity for me to actually direct. It was so fun. And those performances were so great. Again, the authenticity, like... I mean, there's this one scene where she's like yelling at her mother and you could just, I mean, she is just nailing it. She is yelling at her mother in Russian and she's exasperated and the daughter gets in on it. And it's like, it's just all of that life, all of that juicy goodness. It was like, that was what we were going to be able to get by virtue of what we had access to. You know, we could have sat around waiting for more money to come in. And instead we went with what we had. And I'm really, I'm really happy with the result. You, you get, showed us glimpses of just like Bronx life, that culture, the, the melting pot of cultures. Because like you said, all these different and insights into people's home lives, even just the prison narrative. It was just so sweet. Shopping this story and then even finding Bath to produce, like getting this made, what was your, what was that journey? Yes. Yeah, so Bafo was the first producer on board. I called him and I was just like, hey, I've got this idea for a script. Like, what do you think? He was like, there was this film at South by Southwest called Give Me the Loot. I heard, which is like amazing because Bafo Koto knows everything. He knows yes. everything oh. and everyone. And he will shock you. He was like at South by Southwest, there was a producer on this film that won the jury award called Gimme the Loot. Apparently he started out as a line producer and got bumped up to a producer. And mind you, he didn't know anybody involved with this film. So I don't know how he knew this, but he was like, there was a line producer who was bumped up to producer. And I think that that is who you should target in terms of reaching out to him to see okay. if he'd be interested in working on this. And that was it. So I, so then I found the guy's name again, Bach didn't know him. So he's not, he could pass me his email address. So I found the guy's name it was Jamin Washington, who of course is our lead producer. I got his name. I got on Facebook because I saw that he went to Columbia and then I found other friends who went to Columbia. I asked if they could go into the Columbia, like whatever portal and get his email address. I cold emailed him and was just like, hey, look, I've got this story. I think you'd be great. I would love to meet and see if we could, you know, Kiki. Um, and if you if you spark to this, then, you know, I'd love to have you. 
he was like, sure, let's meet for tea. I thought I was courting this big fancy producer. So I was like, yeah, 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 let's have tea. I'll meet you at the uh, Crosby Street Hotel, which LOL is, the Crosby Street Hotel is owned by Firmdale, a British company yeah, yeah, who also yeah. owns Covent Garden Hotel, right? So very fancy, high level, whatever. A tea at the Crosby Street Hotel is $18. And I was working in a restaurant. I was working in a restaurant. I had no business taking anybody out for $18 tea. So um, we met for tea and it was great. We had a great vibe. He was interested in the things that I was saying. He was like, what I love about this is that it's like an immigrant story, but it's not an immigrant story. And you've avoided a lot of the tropes and a lot of the things yes. that like, kind of go into that. And Jamin also is first, gen I'm sorry, he's not first generation. He's black American. That was also a big test for me was like, would this film matter to somebody who wasn't of the culture? Because obviously Baf and I are both Ghanaian. And he really sparked to it. So then he uh, he came on board. And then from there, we started trying to raise money and, and getting everything together. Um, and it just took a really long time. And, you know, you tell people that you want to make a dark comedy about a Christian bookstore in the Bronx featuring exclusively people of color leads. And, you know, the money dries up. The money does not flow. <laughs> but it got made. And the response has been... Wait, have you been surprised? Surprised? Yeah, I've been surprised for sure. I've winning awards and getting nominated for awards and stuff like that. I mean, like this was all meant to be. I, I put on my incredibly Machiavellian hat. This was all intended to be like a calling card, like a you know, like how many people look at. Well, Barry Jenkins' career is kind of interesting because he did make medicine for melancholy and then and then like disappeared for it. I mean, he was living his life, but he, he went away for a long time before Moonlight. And I think that this was my medicine for melancholy. Like I was going to make this small film that like five people would see. Yeah. Um, it would kind of like fly under the radar. But then when I wrote the big fancy script for the next thing, I could get money because I could point to this other thing that I had done and I had been able to execute. And so for this to have that the reception that it's had and like I said like winning awards at Tribeca and then getting nominated for the Independent Spirit Award and um you know it's been beyond my wildest expectations yeah there were just so many dark nights of the soul you know what I mean like and I just wanted to cross the finish line we were in danger of not even finishing the film so I just wanted to finish the film let alone get into Tribeca let yeah. alone win awards let alone get nominated for bigger awards go to LA for the Spirit Awards and I'm like you know standing next to fancy people on the red carpet I'm like what is this? You are one of them now. Yeah. <laughs> You're the fancy people. Just on acting, directing, doing everything. Yeah, doing everything was really hard. <laughs> I, I would not recommend it. It was extremely difficult. I really leaned heavily on Jamond, you know, on my producers, on Boff, you know, so that if we talk about the shot the night before, the day of, I get in, go into hair and makeup. They're setting up the shot because we've already discussed what it's meant to look like. I go check the shot hop in, make sure the actors don't have any problems with the lines, rehearse it a couple of times. I don't think anybody, I obviously a ton of people do it, but like, I don't think it is correct in the order of the cosmos for me to care what I look like while directing something. I need to be able to show Honestly. up in Crocs and sweatpants and spots on my face and my hair like this. I should be able to look like whatever. The fact that I had to be conscious of what I was going to look like in front of a camera while also directing, I'll never do it again. It was an absolute nightmare. I will direct, I will write, I will act. I will never combine the three of them. But you did so well. It was, no, no. No. The hats off because you did do well and especially on a small budget little indie cute little film thank you amazing um 
Give me a book that you have to have in your collection at all times. It changes. Ooh, this is tough. It really depends on like one season of life. Okay. All right, here we go. One book that you have to have always is Beloved, but it's like very obvious, you know? I also think one book that one must always have and revisit at different seasons of life is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. It is astounding. It is poetic. It is beautiful. Give me a film or a TV show that you, anytime it's on, you watch it, you know all the words, you will always watch it forever. Okay. Oh, see, okay. There's The Big Lebowski. I love that film. It just makes me chuckle and it's so quotable. And I just, I really love that movie. Then there's a a little known film that I don't know why it didn't get more like play. The Contender. It came out in like 2000. And so Joan Allen, and it's like a political... I guess a political thriller and it is shocking because it is 22 years old and all the issues are like a hundred percent relevant today. And then there's also the, um, I know you asked for one, I'm giving you three. The third one is the English patient. I think the film is a bit of a lightning rod, but I do think it's so beautiful. And I think Anthony Mangella was taken from us way too soon because he had a lot more in the tank and a lot more beautiful stories to tell. And then if I'm like really like playing around anything with early Eddie Murphy, obviously coming to America, trading places, any of the Beverly Hills cops, any of those like excellent, excellent, excellent. But also his stand-up. I will watch Raw anytime, anywhere, any day. Early Eddie Murphy, man, does not miss. Give me a tune or an album that kind of represents you. Everyone knows that this is what's going to get Nana shaking her bum bum. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Represents me or gets me shaking my bum bum? Because those are two very different things. Ooh. I would say something that really hits for me is the Blueprint 4. Hey. Uh, yeah. I think like Jay-Z, there's a thing happening there. Okay. <laughs> no disrespect to Beyonce, but I think there's a thing happening there. I... I think there's something about his energy that I really espouse that like makes sense to me. Okay. And really, I don't know, you know, there's just, yeah. So that's the one that I'm like, I would say that we are synergized, okay. at, like the blueprint, Jay-Z. But if it's, it's, if it's in terms of like getting it like moving, I don't know, anything by Burner Boy, really. I mean, like honestly, anything. I have, I have an unhealthy anything. obsession with Burner Boy. It's, it's not unhealthy. <laughs> and let me tell you something. Here's a fun fact. Uh, you know, at the V&A Museum right now, they're having that Africa fashion. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I went to that and they have the suit that he wore to the, I think it was the 2020 Grammys. Do you remember he wore this like unbelievable suit that was like bejeweled and crusted? Yes. And it looked yes. heavy as hell. Like yes. it was just like, oh my God. I mean, African giant for real. And that was there. And I stood in front of it for like way too long. <laughs> And also we're, we're twins. Jay-Z's first blueprint. That is, that is a bit of an anthem album for me as well. It, it's, it's an anthem an, album. Energy, it's an energy. Something that you saw on stage that had big impact on you. When I say stage, it's theatre or concert. One of the first plays I saw in New York was called Circle Mirror Transformation. It's like a little known play. It's a deep cut of off-Broadway theatre. I get it. Yeah, it's a deep cut. Um, but it's called Circle Mirror Transformation. Basically, everybody in that cast has since gone on to win a Tony Award and now is like, you know, whatever. But it was written by uh, Annie Baker, um, who has gone on to win all the awards. She's won all the awards. And so um, that 
play was really interesting for me. I think I didn't really know you could do that on stage. Similarly, okay, now I'm gonna give you two more and I know I'm just cheating. I'm just cheating, I'm cheating. cheating. The link to Circle Mirror Transformation was that there was an actor named Deidre O'Connell who was in Mm -hmm. that play. She's gone, she just won a Tony this year for another play that blew my mind called Dana H. Um, written by Lucas Nath. He wrote A Doll's House Part Two that Noma Dumezwini just did in London at Donmar Warehouse. Yeah. And um, that play, I can't even begin to describe it. It's so amazing. And I believe it closed on Broadway fairly quickly because, you know, it came back pretty, a little too early in the pandemic, Omicron, okay, et cetera. Okay. But I think I think I heard a rumor that like Amazon or somebody is going to film it and then put it on the platform. It deserves to live forever. I thought it was brilliant. And then the last play that I saw for two years. Oh, my gosh. I'm like almost going to get emotional. Oh, it was Ruth Nega. Ruth Nega doing Hamlet. At oh, St. yes, yes. In Brooklyn. And it was one of the most I am going to cry. Wow. It was one of the most extraordinary performances I've ever seen in my life. And wow. it was so life affirming. And it was one of those things that like, you know, cause obviously I spent the first part of the pandemic in New York and it was such a scary time. And like, we really just all thought we were going to die. Like we didn't know where this thing was coming from and we didn't know how it was transmitted. And it was just so fearful. And I remember thinking like, if I'm going to go out like this, like, thank God I saw that play. Her talent is boundless she is incredible and that staging that direction everything that whole cast was pitch perfect and i remember somebody in the audience had a bit of a cough like it was literally the the penultimate performance before it got shut down everybody was already like on edge it was march of 2020 early part of the second week of march of 2020 and i remember everyone like somebody had a cough and everyone was like (sighs) you know like it was just Uh, didn't know what was it yeah man it was so dangerous all sitting there packed house no masks that really moment. changed me. And I think it just lodged in my brain because I remember, I had to remember it, right? Like it was the last thing I saw in a theater for two years. Like, oh, yeah. It was I thank God it was a powerful play rather than something that was like, oh my God. I know. I missed my life and health for this shit. But it- You know? <laughs> last thing, what's made you sad, mad and glad this past week? What has made me sad? I won't name names, but I had a dream moderator for film is coming out 26th of August in the UK and we're kicking it off with a fabulous screening and event in Brixton at the Ritzy Cinema and um, I had a dream moderator for the event and that moderator is unable to do it and so that made me sad I know I know what made me mad something that made me mad oh well this is a small thing but I was on a plane recently with my small child and the two people sitting next to me were unmasked and that, and no shade because I don't wear a mask all the time, but we were on an airplane and they both were coughing. Oh, and, no. like, and, and I was like, I was sitting there with like an infant on my lap and it was like, can you ask this, the flight attendant for a mask? Like, you know, it was a packed flight. So I had nowhere to go. It's not like I could move seats oh. and they were together a couple sitting in the middle seat and the window seat. And I was in oh. the aisle and they were just like, Hacking up alone. No. To make myself not panic, I was just like, you know what? They're just getting over COVID. They've got some lung scarring. They're not contagious. They're just, you know, getting over it. And that's what I decided is happening. But I'll tell you in two days whether or not they had COVID. Oh, my God. I feel, I I mean, honestly, I get you. I'm mad because stop coughing. And it's so irrational, but stop it. What's made you glad? 
<laughs> what has made me glad? I am currently on a family holiday in southwestern France, and uh, it has made me glad to wake up and not look at my phone. We rented a house, and my phone is somewhere in the house, and I don't really keep track of it. Yeah. You know, I don't have any appointments. I don't have anywhere to be. My biggest thing is to find a time to go for a run, maybe at some point in the next couple of days. <laughs> um, or not. Or not. Or just sit in the house and eat cheese. Yeah. Um, wonderful. This may be glad speaking to you finally. Thank yeah. you for your time. And as you said, that Queen of Glory is available in the UK on the 26th of August. Have a great holiday and thank you so much for your time with us today. Thank you. This was a delight. Wonderful, wonderful. Take care.